having the the confidence of your conviction and being willing to I don't know being willing to not get bogged down by your own insecurities and sure you might be wrong but you can you probably know when it's going wrong you can fix it then like you don't have to let everyone know if you don't want to you can just fix it <laughs> like how does that person keep on winning and keep on doing the right thing they're not they are constantly screwing up they're just quite good at hiding the fact that they're screwing up <laughs> Welcome to The Light Lounge, the first podcast for lighting designers, creatives, and designers who work with light. My name is Thomas Milch, I'm a lighting designer in New York City, and in this week's episode, I speak with the one and only Charles Marshall from Park Office. He is the creative director and founding partner of Park Office and driven by the desire to seamlessly integrate digital technology within the physical environment and also use design to foster significant, meaningful interactions and experiences in space. Park Office has won awards working with amazing clients like Adidas, Google, Gucci, The North Face and so on. And along the way, uh, Charles worked for companies like Google, Microsoft, AOL and built the famous Rockwell Group's lab into the lab as it is today. He's originally from the UK and before he became this successful, amazing designer as he is today, there were some challenges and exciting moments that we speak about in this week's Light Lounge. And no one else could tell the story better than Charles himself and we jump right into today's episode and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Charles Marshall. I am indeed the uh, design director and a partner with my business partner Will Prince in Park Office here in the East Village uh, on a rainy on a rainy Friday. Um, I am British. I am primarily trained as an industrial designer. Uh, my business partner Will is trained as an architect, um, and I always classify him as the grown-up one. Somehow the Certainly in the UK, the differentiation between industrial design and anything that was art college in comparison to uh, architecture school, which had a much bigger, had a big A in front of it. Right. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Um, I moved to the US almost 15 years ago um, as a wide-eyed young designer um, running my own business with uh, another business partner in the UK. We were making furniture, making lighting pieces, um, which didn't make any money at all because when you're young and you don't really know how to uh, do profit and loss and accounts and you go, okay, let's make a bunch of tables. Now we'll sink all of our money into it. Now we'll try and get our money back. Um, we actually made money through doing consulting jobs and it tended to be in the weird and wild world of what would be then considered guerrilla marketing, sort of making mm -hmm. either fun events or um, doing um, weird small products that were short run for a, for a company. We did a lot of stuff where we were quote unquote very British for British companies in the US, so British Airways, um, some Diageo stuff, some of the sort of bigger classic British firms wanting to show their Britishness by getting two 20-something-year-olds to do fun and weird things in New York. Uh, and we decided to open 
an office here for that. So I moved over in 2004 to open that. It obviously went completely bankrupt almost immediately. Everything went sideways. I then got a job at uh, the Rockwell Group, which is where I met Will. In fact, I met Will just before Will, in fact, helped me get a job at the Rockwell Group. And that's sort of where the architecture and the industrial design and sort of the beginnings of the beginnings of interaction design all started to mash together in a studio there that progressed through. And that's the Rockwell Group has been a really big part of my progression from an industrial designer to a sort of architect slash interaction physical interaction and digital interaction designer mm -hmm. with a stint going out to Silicon Valley for Google, Microsoft, AOL. Surprisingly enough, I was an AOL employee for a hot minute. Um, so that's where the sort of technology world, industrial design world and architecture world all mashed together. You met Will at Rockwell or before you said? Just so before. Um, he was friends of friends and he was working for a studio called Studio Red, um, which was a studio that was owned half by... Um, David Rockwell and the Rockwell Group, okay. um, and half by Coca-Cola, and it was a one of the first sort of out-of-house, quasi-in-house brand, physical brand studios. Um, there have been quite a few using that model after the fact, mm -hmm. um, but it was a group that was put together to include graphic designers, motion graphics people, uh, typographers, industrial designers, architects, a real mash of design um, sort of backgrounds right. put together to work on projects for Coca-Cola that were too big for the internal team at Coca-Cola and too small to go to one of the mega firms. It wasn't redoing Coke as a brand or anything. That always went to the Ogilvy's, the sort of Turner Duckworth's, those things. It was, right. we need to build a cool fridge for a new energy drink in Bulgaria. Let's um, it needs to happen in <laughs> two and a half months. Let's right. just get this done. Yeah. Or And then the next time it would be, water parks are a place where loads of people buy soda. Why don't we design a better water park for water park companies? And then the next one would be doing some graphic design for selling potato chips and Coke in uh, supermarkets for lunch in Germany or wherever it was. It was sort of all over the shop. So does this, is this basically now a, a further development of the little tiny weird things that you started developing back when when you started yeah what were way. these what were these things how did they so i think that park office as a studio is a mixture of some of that work we do quite a lot of retail design where it's not uh, you know it was the sort of the progression of that i will say that over the years as much as you know, a designer who always wants to be like, I'm out there doing my own thing. I have benefited from being at some sort of under the wing of some giant corporations. And there is certainly something when I was young about being in those places and learning how to actually steer something through a big company, to actually get the thing that you want out at the far side. These, you know, places like Coca-Cola, places like... Who else have we worked for that's big? Adidas is big, Ford is big, um, Diageo is big. To get the to get something like interesting through that can be quite a series of 
ringers, to use the British term, like really put you through a mangle, like press out all of that, all of what could have been good creative water, and sometimes it's a bit dry and a bit sad at the end. Uh, understand how to try and keep a creative flow, but also understand the business principles behind it has helped massively for us when we try and go and get new business in places. Um, yeah. No, that's there was uh, that w that was very rich. What you just there are a lot of things that we can that we can dig deeper. Mm -hmm. Just for me, sort of to understand a little bit better the timeline. So sure. you started as an industrial designer, yes. And now my f my understanding is that you are very heavy technology mm -hmm. driven. Yes. Did you study industrial design, or w where did you go, and when did you start working for these companies, and when did you... So, for example, is, did Rockwell happen after your Silicon Valley experience, or...? Either side. So, the interesting one is that I think I've been back to work at Rockwell either three times or four times over the past 15 years, and sometimes for a stint of six months, and sometimes for two, three years. Um, because so you studied sorry to interrupt yeah. again so you studied industrial design uh -huh. in in England in the UK yeah. in the UK um, finished that mm -hmm. and had your own tinkering business in the UK I had uh, so I uh, the the full timeline is went to art school uh, went to Falmouth College of Arts and went and did 3D design which was a bit of craft work but not craft work but craft work when it comes to uh, designing in 3D. So there was an element of um, landscape design if you really wanted to get into it. It was a little bit of the light end of architecture of kind of building stuff, but not really architecture. Uh -huh. Product design and industrial design. Right. And it was sort of create your own adventure degree. Um, and I focused quite heavily on furniture as product, lighting as product, some more traditional industrial design. And then also... I suppose um, exhibit design, as much as anything else, mm -hmm. um, as the sort of mix, uh, came out of that, did not get immediately the job of being head of Pentagram. Of <laughs> and I was shocked. Yeah. Uh, and people said, well, now you have to go and work for free. Now you do an internship. And I think I was quite bloody minded that I was like, well, why would I work for somebody else for free when I can work for myself for free? And that was the same thought for my then business partner, Tim Wood. He had come out of Central St. Martins and the same kind of thing. He had uh, some furniture designs and people liked them. Like, well, why would I go and do that somewhere else? Right. So <laughs> we set up a firm and were hugely helped by the British European Design Group. Makes, you know, single tier whenever I think about the current state of British politics in Europe and the mm -hmm. fact that of how much the European Union and the British trade and industry work together to promote and help young designers. Right. Such a big thing, made such a difference to my life. Um, they gave us a grant to go and show at, uh, at Salon du Meuble. They, show, they helped us show at uh, Ambiente. They helped us show at the ICFF. They helped us hugely promote ourselves as designers and ourselves working with British manufacturing, making furniture and lighting and all these pieces. Um, and that was sort of what gave us the impetus to be in New York and be in Frankfurt and be, you know, in well, Milan and feel yeah. confident that we were not charlatans, even though, you know, everyone has their own level of imposter syndrome, but it was a huge thing for us. Um, that gave us the confidence to want to open an office in New York. So 
I moved here. That's when it did not go hugely well because we didn't know what we were doing, really. But we were quite work hard, but not necessarily smart, if that makes, you know. So when I, when I picture myself being, uh, being a young dude running into you in the streets mm -hmm. of New York, not knowing what you would do is probably, does it mean, I, I picture it that you have been, you had always a very good eye for potential design mm -hmm. and how to bring things together. Mm -hmm. Not knowing what to do is like, does it mean setting up a business or how yeah. to, how to, yeah. It was more things like we had people working for us in our studio in London, uh, but not really understanding how to hedge currencies to make sure that a contract that we sign in dollars in the US changing it to pounds, what happens when you don't quite figure out the f possible fluctuation in exchange rate, but you've agreed to do X month, numbers of months of work at a certain rate that suddenly is getting less and less money every month, and you start to freak out and panic. And also our margins were zero, because we were 24, 25, and we're like, that's ah, fine, I can live on 35 pounds a year. I'm like, it's <laughs> fine, we're doing cool stuff, it's fine. Um, turns out you can't. Um, so we decided, both Tim and I decided that we wanted to, we should probably go and work for somebody else. Go and actually have somebody else do the hard part of the contracts and the other stuff, and we could actually design again. I think as young designers, we were very fortunate to have the opportunity, but it did turn into us being business businessmen right. who were also designers rather than designers. But how's the balance now today? A much better. Um, I think that part of what helped Will and I when we set up Park together was we'd both run businesses before when we were quite young. We both didn't want to do it again. Okay. And there's something about coming from a position of skepticism that is actually good for mental health when it comes to how much time we're willing to um, uh, not so much time or how much we are willing to sacrifice in our own lives for the business right. and to be slightly more realistic about um, having a life. Whereas when I was 22, 23, it was that or nothing, which is great. And, you know, at 22, 23, you can do that. And I think I'm, I don't regret that in any way. Right. But I am glad that I don't work 24-hour shifts and we don't work all day Saturday and Sunday and we don't have a life like that now and we don't pass that on to our employees we're not saying you should do the this is what's expected of you you're a young designer i did it you know it's right. that sort of you have to go through it right you need to <coughs> pardon me yeah you need to hustle hustle your work right i mean i think that there is an expectation that you know i think we're will, will and i are slightly jaded with that and we you know we'll say come on you know we're all yeah we've all been there before but and i think that is a big lesson in itself that you that it's a I think it, it's a it's a big lesson for being sort of an entrepreneur or just mm. to understand market better and how you bring value and that there is a, a certain cap to how to connect value to time yes and that you don't that that the biggest most successful people in the world don't trade uh, value for their time right exactly so Okay, so um, I'm I'm still in the timeline yep. in my so, head. Where did you Where did you go next from? So from running my running the design studio with Tim, uh, which was called Fug Design F U G G. Terrible name. Amazing. We thought it was great at the time. Yes. It was one of those ones I look back on being like, oh yeah, interesting. Um, <laughs> I still have a heart for it, but we both decided that we wanted to spend more time designing 
Um, and so I, we decided that running the business itself was sort of breaking us. Um, and breaking, you know, things like not breaking our friendship, but it was really hard. We were we've been we were friends since we were ten years old, and it was really hard not being mature enough to quite understand boundaries when it comes to running a business with somebody when you're 21, 20, 21, and understanding how to be mad at each other in a constructive way and how to push each other in a constructive way without it being something of you know harking back to literally like teenage boy stuff. Um, so what, I was, what, what was the biggest friction point? Um, and then how, yeah, how, how do you cope now with saying like, Hey, this, this is not right. So I, I mean, a big part of it was that Fug, Tim and I ran Fug as, yeah, I know it's great. Um, as something that was, uh, a passion project that we were trying to shift our life into. So we both had day jobs in London because it's London, you got to earn. So I worked for TFL as a civil engineer, basically doing a civil, I'd done some civils apprenticeship work Yeah. because I'd always like building stuff. So that's a big part of, I think, where why I'm where I am now is that I enjoy building things, getting right. stuff built, quite big stuff. So I worked on literally on civil engineering road, road works, building roundabouts and traffic lights and that kind of stuff, paid well, came out of me knowing CAD and then just working my way into it, being a, doing some surveying work and all that kind of stuff. So right. we both had day jobs and it was, the friction was young, broke friction, was how much time and effort we were both putting into it that was extraordinarily and inextricably linked to our capacity to earn money and live in London. And the more time we put into it, the less money we earned. So it was that it was that push and pull between us um, that we then we had a good like like real really emotional sit down and you know conversation about how we were going to address it I and mean, it got a lot better um, but it's the kind of thing that I don't worry about in the slightest now and part of that and it's one of the things I mentor at uh, New Ink with young design practices. And one of the biggest things I always say is if you're in a business partnership with somebody or with a group of people, mm -hmm. no one is going to worry about the effort that you put in on that design project. It's the buying toilet roll. Say uh, it again. It's the buying the toilet roll and the making sure the electricity bill is paid. Right. And what we classify as the shit list. Yeah. You have to make a giant list of all of the shit that you have to do and that's what you actually have to be grown up and mature about divvying up between you because that's how you actually run a business being designers and your input on design projects is much more about ego it's much more about conversation and maturity and those kinds of things it's not really anything to do with the crushingly boring day to day of making sure that the tax filing is under the right quarterly code or whatever the hell it is that's the that's business and i think because will and i have been through it before we have always been quite like oh, okay fine here's the here's the here's the the split of those duties i think that's a super interesting topic you just touched on is that I think that a lot of and the people listening right now a lot of have questions okay how do I, how can I bring my design lighting design design business into like something yeah and I think there is 
some sort of this beautiful combination of have, being super passionate about passionate about mm -hmm. it, but then at the same time, some a learning that you make that there is some sort of reality mm -hmm. that comes with it, and that's that's super interesting because exactly as you said before, or as you started your business, me and a lot of people feel like, hey, I'm super driven, super passionate. Right. But how do I then make it work? So how has there been like a turning point where you said, okay, now I sort of feel comfortable not completely exhausting myself. Has there been like a moment of, okay, this is reality and I just accepted, accepted the fact and I just have to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I think so to do that, I'll do the high speed whiz through the timeline. So from Fug, we closed down Fug, I went and worked for Rockwell. Yeah. I worked for Studio Red. Um, out of Studio Red, I went to go and work. Weirdly enough, I went from there to Microsoft. Um, and at Microsoft, I was working on hospitality and technology coming together. And I had ostensibly come from the, the hospitality side at Rockwell. But I realized that through my personal passion and my learning around building things and creating and my tinkering nature, I knew quite a lot about the physical integration of technology into spaces, hospitality or, right. or, um, or, or sort of commercial. I have a held you connect this TV and this Microsoft Zoom and this uh, Xbox together in this place and make it work so that the sound, like the right thing works at the right time. Um, from there, I then went further into the world of, that was AOL and some other stuff, getting further and further into the physical integration of technology and spaces. Right. A lot to do with sort of corporate exhibit design. Um, I then went back to Rockwell Group because they, because two friends who had been in Studio Red, who were technologically minded, a guy called Joshua Walton and James Titchener, um, had sort of squirreled themselves away in a corner when Studio Red stopped happening. And they had been given a little bit of money by David Rockwell to think about technology in a really interesting R&D sense within hospitality and within the kinds of projects that Rockwell Group does. And from that little tiny ember, they built um, the lab at Rockwell Group, which is now quite a big group, you know, and they have since left. They went to go and run uh, a section of HoloLens at, my, uh, um, at Microsoft. They now do consulting. They're working on Oculus. They're working on a bunch of other stuff between them. And I came back as the third person with a beard. Uh, they are two uh, dudes with big beards. Um, and I came back as the third person with a beard to be the sort of managing director when it came to the production side of that. So I came with, I came back into Rockwell Group um, to work as the facilities of getting things built and physically how we were going to integrate all of this interesting motion graphics and technology work that these guys were doing, the lab was doing, into the interesting buildings themselves. And that is... When the lab grew um, and started to build out more and more stuff, that's when we were doing some of the work for Google to create these sort of big, interesting showroom slash science museum-y kinds of spaces mm -hmm. that Google was asking for. Mm -hmm. um, and then from then, um, when James and Josh left the lab, I also left the lab and I was very involved with Google and the Google work. So I went to go and work at Google for a, spa, for a spell. Um, and from there, 
Will was working on the Museo Gucci. I was in pa- in Florence. I was in Paris working on the Cultural Institute for Google, and we realized that he was working on a big architectural piece that needed some technology. I was working on a big technology piece that needed architecture, and we'd known each other for ten years. Why weren't we? Moonshine, doing this together. moonshine, birds, music. Yes, and exactly. Suddenly, it came all together. Yeah, um, and on a very practical level, like when I wasn't at the lab anymore, I'm I'm British. I'm not an American citizen. So I, you know, it's the as you understand the age old um, complexity and stress of work visas. You know, you're being asked to work on things by American companies. Yet the the rigmarole of that, and I fully am aware of my middle-class British English-speaking whiteness in that complexity that I am, you know, the easiest of easiest, and it still gives me heartburn. And for anyone else in that world, how hard it is to work through USCIS to be able to find their way to work with American companies, which is also feels crazy because like, I'm paying tax, we're earning money, we're doing all this stuff. But anyway, so that was a big thing. You know, when I was in Paris, I was a European citizen working in Paris. Everything's fine. Danny, when I came back to the US, it was, okay, well, I we need to be a corporation purely so I can get my work visa right. sorted. Um, and then that was the beginning of Park. That was what well, I should actually say that's a change in Park. Will had been running Park for a couple of years beforehand. Mm-hmm. And it was much more based on his background. He's a, you know, proper architect, OMA, that whole crowd grown-up stuff, fun European, Northern European style. Um, You know, he's Harvard GSD. He comes from that pedigree of being open to the integration of weird and interesting into architecture. Yeah. Um, And so it was a a good fit um, when we came together. And... I think we have the timeline. I think I'm, I'm, satisfi- <laughs> I'm, I'm satisfied yeah. now. <laughs> That's prob- the most long-winded version of it. And I appreciate it because there were a couple of points that are super interesting. I'm jumping back into the situation you described. Okay, you got a little bit of money from mm-hmm. David Rockwell mm-hmm. and having like an R&D lab. And what, like the, can you bring us back into the mindset? Okay, now we are here and we have this we have this opportunity, we have a little bit of money, we mm-hmm. can do something. How did you approach it? How have you thought about how can this then lead into potential business opportunities? How can the pro- the product or mm-hmm. the f- did do you think do you have the mindset okay, there needs to be a viable product that we develop that then can lead into sales? How I think, I mean, the the lab in its earliest incarn- incarnation as purely R&D, there was a good couple of years where Josh and James worked together with um, uh, a couple of other people. Brett Renfrew is now, uh, who was at Collins for a while, who's now uh, part of Blue Cadet. Like, there was, I think, a combination of Josh and James's passion and... James is originally an architect. Josh is originally a uh, artist and computer programmer. Them being in a place like Rockwell Group, which has a sort of, it does have a passion for the uh, weird and wonderful. 
literally, you know, quote unquote wonderful. And I think that I don't know that that would have worked at Gensler in the same way or some, or, you know, or um, HLK or any of those bigger, more traditional architecture firms. I think that Rockwell's mix of hospitality, uh, you know, big hospitality projects where you want a bit of glitter and sparkle and fun, Mm -hmm. the Broadway stuff. So there was a capacity for temporary, fun, silly, frivolous, but, you know, entertaining. Yeah. Um, The number of projects they'd always done in Vegas, which has a turn that wants new, has money, is willing to spend money on fun and frivolity and lightness. Um, was a really prime place for the lab to happen. Yeah. Then the fact that there was this beginning of group of students coming out of ITP who want to make strange, odd little things, but probably don't come at it from a commercial level. I think what I brought to the party was, all right, how do we make this into, you know, I think the grounding of working on the things for Coca-Cola for years, which is like, yeah. this is great, uh, you know, this is great fun retail fixturing, but how do we make it Coca-Cola and how do we make it be a thing that they're willing to pay for and makes people go, oh, well, that's pretty nice. Coke's doing an interesting thing. That was a lot of what my job was, was to figure out like, okay, well, we've made this weird, wonderful thing. Where do we put it and how do we sell it to somebody? Right. Without too much pressure i will say it was not like brutal if you don't make your numbers everyone's gonna like everyone get out on the street um but i think that understanding that i certainly something like in that the beginnings of that digital interaction within environments but also as we were talking before you know off mic as it were the the progression of technology working into a more considered interaction with lighting um the sprinkle of that in hospitality and entertainment like vegas is really good for it right they've got a boatload of money off those craps tables and the turn on hospitality build in vegas is so fast most hotels won't get refit for 10 years some seven that's seven, sort of the tradition. Ten, if it's a lower end. Um, Vegas is three. If your hotel is four years old in Vegas, it's, it's old, old. Done. Get rid of it. No one goes to like, and you can see the you know the desire for new and bigger and shinier. And I mean, it's dumb. We all know it's dumb, but it's fun. Uh, you know, and one of the giant projects that made the lab was the Cosmopolitan Hotel and basically being thrown at that. The Cosmopolitan Hotel has a super insane history. It went bankrupt like right. three times in a row. It got bought. It ended up as a sort of repo, you know, thing. Deutsche Bank owned it. Deutsche Bank, literally Deutsche Bank, was in the position of holding the, a half-built casino they are not in the world of finishing a casino. They literally said, okay, well, we can finish this. And they showed gray paint and concrete. And they were like, we're going to do this. And everyone was like, well, you'll, nice. you may as well just 
not do it because you're going to lose all your money. You either spend the money and do something bonkers because it's Vegas or you don't. And very tactically, someone at Deutsche Bank was like, right, David Rockwell, just do it. Whatever you want, just get on with it. Um, And he said to the lab, okay, here are a bunch of spaces. We need some spectacle. We need something fun, something crazy, something interesting. Go for it. And we did. You know, and so the lobby at the Cosmopolitan Hotel, the Chandelier Bar, a few other pieces within Cosmo were all from the lab as a... Centerpiece? Yeah, basically as the sparkle in, you know, there was obviously the right, beautiful interior work of the casino and the rooms and all the other pieces, but there needed some big jazz, like a big thing. Like, what the hell do you right. do? Yeah. Um, and especially when it was a building that had been chopped and changed so many times, it didn't, Cosmopolitan didn't come out of a design process, which was, we're going to build the biggest pool in Vegas. And then a hotel came after it. It was three, four different things. It was a tower block for a time. It was this, that, and the other. So it was a set of circumstances that we were then like, okay, literally the lobby for the Cosmopolitan Hotel was formerly supposed to be a parking deck it was supposed to be a parking lot so what do you there's no exterior windows there was no grand visage like what the hell do you do with it and that was a really interesting set of criteria to then say okay now we design now this makes i think now this makes a little bit more sense now that the that new design that thinking outside the box and and trying something new can then become sort of an anchor Mm -hmm. for For a building or for a mall or yeah. for a retail space that then is so attractive that actually customers get drawn to it. Right. Shifting like a little bit more focus now on, on park mm-hmm. office. Sure. What would what is a what is a customer, what is a client that come to you? What what do clients come for you? Um I think for the most part, a lot of the bit that I didn't really touch on was the sort of consulting work that we did that Will and I have done over the years and that's been for Coca-Cola back in the day when it wasn't necessarily a build project it was consulting like how do we get consumers to want to be interested in this thing or um, be attracted to this and I think a lot of that work is now talked about as strategy And there are strategists, and strategists do that. But I think that Will and I are both old enough that that was part of the that was just part of the design process. Always part of it, yeah. And it was always the bit before concept. But the question is, are people willing to pay for it? We have, in fact, more often than not, repackaged that as another thing. And so at Park Office, we say the things that we do are technology design in the broadest of senses architectural design and design services Mm -hmm. and design strategy and uh design strategy services i know that's kind of a wordy version of it but there's a there's a better chart but often what we get hired to do by large companies is not build us a shop build us a hotel build us a residential building it is either we have this weird thing or we were thinking about this odd thing more often that so the culture institute in paris museo gucci all of the work for adidas um trying to think of others that come under the that heading there are quite a few others some of the some of the other google work at 
the beginning were not build projects at all. Museo Gucci is a classic for Will. Gucci said, we have a bunch of stuff in a basement. We have a, an archive in a basement. What do we do with it? From that, it was, okay, we could do a touring show. We could do uh, take pieces of this beautiful original Gucci and put them into every single store around the world and have like a mini exhibit museum into all of them. And then about a year into the process, somebody at Gucci was like, oh, well, we do have that building next to the Uffizi. Uh where everyone was like, wait, what? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah. We have a 999-year lease on the building next to the Uffizi. We could just use that. Where everyone was like, oh, sure, let's build a museum. So that was a museum that came out of a collection. The work for Adidas that we did for years, which was about creating retail spaces that fit uh, the location better uh, and reclassified a lot of... They had... 22 different store types and we tried to help bring that down that originally was just a retail consulting gig fly around the world see a load of adidas stores tell us what's good and what's bad and we came back and said well you have too many different types and all of the retail fixturing is different and the technology is bad and it seems a bit all over the place yeah how come and they were like well we've rejigged it and we've re done launches about every three years for the past 15 years you're like okay so every time you do a whole new bunch of stuff and it lasts three years and then somewhere else you redo it and somewhere else you read it so we're not gonna and they were like so are you gonna redo it i'm like no we're not gonna redo it we're just gonna start cutting stuff we're gonna go from 21 see how far down we can get you know trying to consolidate and clarify their physical design message through their retail stores and that came, <clears throat> excuse me. And that came out that so so you flew around the world and you basically analyzed, took a lot of data, uh -huh. took a lot of pictures, yeah. made an assessment yeah. what is happening, and then doing of course something that good designers do. They look at okay, the design can only get better when we reduce to the minimum until you can't take anything away anymore. Um, do you think that? And I'm. Going to all these are all big name brands and all yeah. like companies that have been along around for a long time. Do you think that we do work for small people as well? I will say that I think that we tend to talk about the bigger names because people know who they are, right? Um, and it the carry on with your question. I would ju just to say that like it's not just that you know we've done like I helped my friends open a bar in Bushwick. I right. did some design for them, yeah. and it's a really fun place. It's called yeah. Honorary Club. You should go. Anyway. Um, of course. Yeah. Everyone uh, should go. Yeah. Uh, so for, what is more challenging? I'm, my question goes, my question wanted to go into bigger companies means also may, maybe a herder, hurdle of communication, or are they actually more looking forward to it, to something, okay, we are this big company, but now we need something we have something we would like to explore and play with it in order to build potentially an emotional touch point to, to consumers. I what is? I think that working with big brands, tend, you tend to work with physically lots of people. And many a design project, we have managed to succeed where internal teams have failed, not through any fault of the internal team, but purely having the capacity to bypass internal communications. 
in what how do you do it by having access to the boss <laughs> you know basically direct access yes. there can be somebody who is a superb lighting designer superb product designer superb uh, you know retail design person within big companies but to for them to get their stuff seen and to be able to speak about their design and be passionate about it and explain why they've done stuff has to go through so many sets of you know almost like canal locks those times where you know it, it stops and it fills up with water and then you wait and then you've got to pick the bit that you want and you know inevitably that it gets people get scared and people in that process get it is rare that internal design groups have the confidence to not dull down design as it goes up through the ranks um I throw a shout out to somebody who are, you know, two people who I think who are doing amazing work. Um, my friends, uh, Lee and Kwame over at Chibani, who have been brought from the agency world to run a design team at Chibani and have the internal agency, uh, you know, the the sort of the, the capacity to speak truth to power within within Chibani and create beautiful work without those ingrained layers of being scared to push. And I think that often when agencies like us have the capacity to do good work, sure, it's we're good designers, we enjoy it, and we're creating something fun and interesting. But often, it's literally will and my capacity to bypass that entire process and go straight to the boss and go, you should do this, go on. And they go, all right. So that it makes total sense that the more layers you have, the more fear potentially can build up for, oh shit, this can go wrong. And yeah. It's people's jobs on the line, whereas ours, who cares? And you, the ability for you to speak directly to the decision maker, mm -hmm. is this because you are an external agency office? Yeah. I think that often people, weirdly enough, people who are external to businesses get given credence when probably we don't deserve it at certain times. We don't know what we're doing, but we do know design. Yeah. But we don't know your particular problem, but we know the design side of it. And I think that there is a... Often within large corporations, there is, or even medium-sized co companies, there is a, there is the difficulty of knowing too much. You are not like, oh, well, I can't do that because of this, and I can't do that because of this, and I know that this is difficult, and I know that supply chain won't be able to get the thing to the thing, you know, the, the weight of all of that knowledge. Right. Having no, <laughs> the freedom of not having that, you can just go walk to the front and go like, well, you should just do this. And, the, and then somebody who, you know, at times when I've been client side has been me in the background being like, of course you can't do that. It's stupid, stupidest thing I've ever seen in the world. Of course you can't. There are 19 reasons why you can't do that. That in actual fact, if everyone wants to do it, you can. And it's the, the ingrained problems of the business weigh the design so Lim heavily. Limiting beliefs that have, right. have built have been built up in, in everyone's mind. Mm. So what is, I mean, of course, it's it sounds like a very fortunate position you're in that mm. sort of decision makers approach you and yeah. say like, hey, we need something interesting. Can you help us? Yeah. What would be, if, the, if because I think a lot of 
the listeners and potential clients and work in bigger companies, what would be a strategy? What would you recommend to someone who's working in a bigger company who has actually super creative ideas and wants to push the boundaries but is potentially in hurdles? Would you recommend to leave the company and work for a creative office that gets approached where you can explore or? I think that there is, I th the reason that the path of jumping between client side and agency is quite well trodden is because it allows for two different things. Agency work like we are, like most lighting designers are in effect, you know, you many, many clients um, that have wildly different needs is that you get a really interesting broad mix of experience. The downside of agency work is constantly, is you know, in the more traditional sense of agency work is constantly pitching, you know, right. you're hit and miss. Um, and the stress that goes along with that and the sort of rigmarole of that. But you do get to do lots and lots of different things. The flip side of that is client side, as a designer or as a creative, you have the chance to really get in, like the fun side of getting into the weeds of something and really understanding it and really making like grassroots change in comparison to right. quite fun, but probably frivolous design stuff. I don't see, you know, to take a big company, Nike or someone like that, I don't see the agency work that widen you know the people that widen is doing on the furthest edge is changing nike as a company they're making beautiful stuff and it's great and it's lovely and, and nike's really good at um commissioning work but i don't think it's changing culture i don't know that nike needs it but you know what right. i mean yeah. whereas something like seeing Chibani and seeing lee and kwami create something internal that is shifting the creative nature of that business is fascinating that's like wow that's incredible absolutely but really hard like really hard because again as you say it's shift it's not being a speedboat alongside the oil tanker it's changing the old direction of the oil tanker right um but i think that my advice to somebody who feels frustrated within one of those companies is a to express that and talk that up the ladder as much as you can and if that isn't working is to seek to there is probably if you work for any blue chip company anything FTSE 100 etc there is an agency doing the work that you want to do at your company now that isn't internal you are a gold mine to them go and speak to them and if it's a year or so two years great And then there is this odd thing that people don't see growth in employees. It's hard. The person that started as a 25-year-old, by the time you're 30, no one in that, if it's a reasonably large business, it's hard to be seen to have matured and got better and progressed. Sometimes you have to leave. Right. And then come back. You know, my progress through... Oh, not necessarily through the ranks at Rockwell was definitely by going and getting other experience and then being seen to be a more interesting employee when I was coming back. And that sort of backwards and forwards has been good for me and them, you know? 
Uh, so the trend is the trend is, and that's for potentially work um, situation and processes as well. Mm. Is the more sort of rapid prototyping that you try to learn what's working, what's not working, make more changes. I'm not sure who said it. If it was uh, Edison. Uh, Thomas Edison or Henry Ford is like in order to be more successful, you have to double your rate of failure, basically, mm. to make more, to learn more. Basically. Yeah, I mean, I there is some the there I think is a an odd not not to downplay that because those are both people who were those are both businessmen, quite sharp and fairly extreme businessmen. The Silicon Valley adage of fail more faster is a nice idea if you happen to have a ton of VC money, to have the capacity to do it. I think that in for the most part, people don't have the agency or the bandwidth for that failure rate. They just don't. You can't be like, well... You know, I screwed up the last seven, but I'm going to get really great at number eight. Everyone's like, no, you're fired. Like, yeah. stop doing that. Um, I think that there is a worth in pushing yourself, at, but being able to spot when it's about to go off the rails is better than crashing it into the ground or then walking away and being like, oh, sorry. Um, you know, how do you... It, you know... There's a thing, if you've ever played in a band in high school or been in a play or done public speaking or anything where you've prepared and you've rehearsed and you go out and you stand up in front of people and you forget the first line of the play or you miss a note in the song that you're playing or whatever it is, to you it's crushing. But nobody else noticed. And it's understanding those moments and how they can help you to build confidence by looking around like did anyone notice that i missed the third world word in the second stanza of that poem that i was reading or did everyone just see me stand up and recite a poem and i think that a huge amount of the success that will and i have had has been around just just pretending to know i'm gonna keep going like have the confidence to know that the meaning of the words you're saying is is worthwhile. Like, we know what we're doing. Like, just because we didn't say it in exactly the way that we wanted to doesn't really matter. I will say a British accent and that's, you know, a deep voice in and a white male in the US goes a hell of a long way. It just does. And there is... Um, that was always the interesting one, which is like, I don't think that my design is any better and I don't think I'm any smarter than anyone else. What my capacity to do public speaking and speak has given me is the is the extra five minutes to not have to rush. The elevator pitch that I have to do is five minutes, not 30 seconds. And it's unfair but that's the way it is and I'm willing to use it. <laughs> you know, it, um, so it's having the the confidence of your conviction and being willing to, I don't know, being willing to not get bogged down by your own insecurities 
and sure you might be wrong but you can you probably know when it's going wrong you can fix it then like you don't have to let everyone know if you don't want to you can just fix it <laughs> like how does that person keep on winning and keep on doing the right thing they're not they are constantly screwing up they're just quite good at hiding the fact that they're screwing up <laughs> i i'm 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 you you see that i'm moved by this <laughs> by, by this right now because i think everyone has um i think everyone has these thoughts and uh, i think what you just said reaches a lot of minds and a lot of hearts right now oh it's definitely mine too don't <laughs> like and that's and that's the biggest thing is like um it every creative director who's standing up in front of a crowd or every person that's making that presentation to that ceo every like your heart's in your mouth the entire time you just gotta look like you're enjoying it smile through it like it, right. it's a bit you know um pageant mom kind of uh but i think it's also an interesting one is that the reason that i'm good at it is because i've done it a hundred times and the reason that i was okay at number 50 is because i'd done it 50 times a number of 20 like it annoyingly is just doing it but i still you know i do talks to advertising federation groups and this that and the other and before i speak every single time i'm always like oh i don't know what the hell i'm doing what the hell's going on oh god this is terrible what am i gonna say <laughs> and just have to step up onto that you know i keep on thinking about the the amount of terror and confidence involved in doing something like stand-up is extraordinary to me and imagine open mic stand-up the most brutal crowd the most harsh circumstances nothing to hide behind i have slides or a design or a color palette or a something right. um yeah that fascinates me i'm i'm glowing inside right <laughs> now um so the time has been flown away a little bit and uh, i wanted to touch on so many other points um maybe i come to sort of the the last questions sure. um and even though, even that we just maybe potentially just like scratch on the surface of some of the answers, because of course we could mm -hmm. go very deep on a couple of these. Is we talked a lot about I feel like structures, businesses, ideas, how you do processes, how to come to, how do you have like success communicating to a lot of people or getting your design sort of realized? What is uh, what is a desired Uh, what is a two questions uh, two, has two the question has two parts. The first one is, what is a, a, a successful project for you? And B, what would be a, a wish? What is a client on your wish list or a project on your wish list that you would love to do? Okay, um, I think success for us, for Will and I, is very much about seeing something from a spark right the way through to. I will say a built thing. I think that we enjoy things that are just consulting and just the sort of concept level. But at the end of the day, the reason that we 
do this is to build stuff. So I think for us, something that we classify as a success is where we have taken a thought, a question, a a provocation from a client and led them through a process where we get to create a physical thing with them and then to see that place open. There is something about being in a hospitality project when you serve your first meal or your first drink or someone spends a night there or, you know, a retail store where you open the doors and somebody buys something and, like, walks around and uses it. It's about the the final use of the th- of the thing. Um, so for us, it's, you know, being part and parcel of that entire process. Um, and I... And then, the you know, the real marker of success is that they want to come back and do something else. That that client is like, great, let's do a different thing. Um, that's amazing. When you've done that whole, you know, hugely exhaustive process um, and you get repeat business. Because there is something about, like, we got we to gotta pay the bills. So, like, that proves the success of us. We also enjoy a proof of success of the thing that that restaurant gets good reviews and people like it or that store is doing well and it's selling more of the right thing that they wanted to sell or people are having a better experience in that place right you know the use case is a success it does what it's supposed to do um the uh Remind me of the other part of that. Was the, the client or oh, a, or, client. A, or a project yeah. that you would a would like to work with, or a project that you would like to do? Um, I've always been fascinated by the intersection of hospitality and trans- transportation, and we've done recently some of this work with big cruise ships about helping them create more interesting hospitality environments. Um, I like planes. I think there is something, not necessarily about planes. I don't have a desire to do the interior of a... SpaceX. uh, You know, but more what's the experience between you getting out? Like, what's the... For me, there are high points and low points from you getting out of a cab to you arriving at the far end. As in, like, you go through the airport, you go through TSA, you you walk down a long corridor. like, Like, there are loads of bits in that bit. I don't really have a desire to do like a first class lounge because that's just a hospitality project that happens to be in, in an airport. Yeah, in an airport. Um, it's more the actual sort of functional, interesting bit of routing people through a space where you have to do all these kind of technical things. Um, but often that is a municipal project. I have a feeling that that is going to become more and more corporate. I think the deltas of this world are taking bigger chunks of that experience. You know, LaGuardia is like, if you go to Terminal D, it's a giant delta thing. Um, and I think that's the way all of those are going. So I like, I think that there's interesting in that for me, but also sure, SpaceX, they're fun. Okay. <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the airport, I completely understand. It's like, I think a big myth since, I don't know, I started flying. Um, where it's like a weird transition zone and like you're sort of kept you're like caught in Corralled. time. Yeah, weirdly. <laughs> the one that I like, that came up on Twitter the other day and you, you know, it's entirely right. Like I know the logistics of it is hard, but why aren't there cinemas? Right. 
Like I have a I'm why don't you have the Oscars short film series? Okay, you can't put someone in a cinema for two hours because they're going to miss their flight. But 30, if, 35 if, minutes. If there's a f- if your flight is delayed by three hours. Right. right. Yeah. And I think, I think JFK is going to start going that way with the, uh, with the old terminal, the old TWA terminal right. being right there with, you know, the beginnings of that hospitality stuff. Yeah. Yo Sushi, when they were doing Yo Hotel in... Heathrow is an interesting one of like these, you know, you can get a pod room for three hours kind of thing, but it's still kind of sad, kind of miserable. You know, you're in Hounslow. It it feels like there is a lot more opportunity to to do. Maybe one last little thing. And uh, I've raised the question before. What do you think lighting designers can learn most from um, your your, from your work? Um, I think that the biggest thing is that we would consider lighting to encompass projection. Uh, and I use that because a projector is a light source. And as soon as you give the lighting designer agency to think about media and think about use of media as light... Projection mapping on the exterior of stuff as a show is a big thing, but it doesn't have to be that all singing, all dancing. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be a 20-minute Vegas show. It can just be the idea of more light and more pixels being able to be moved around. It doesn't have to be fixture-based. So then your lighting design is more about a canvas than it is about... Well, it's, you know, it's more iPad than piece of paper. You can move the background around. Um, And I would say that, like, a big thing for us, especially in hospitality and especially in in some of our commercial work, is creating light that has arc through the day, through the night, all of those things. So thinking about time... It's not on or off, and it's not about scenes. It's about progression. What's the difference between your lighting design in June as November? How do you make someone happy in the dullest of Januaries that's different about creating something beautiful in the height of summer? You know, how do you use... How do you use time and how do you use pixels and movement to create something that is fundamentally shiftable by your choice, by your agency, your action? So yeah, think about that, you lot. I I exactly leave this question as it is. You just mentioned Twitter to wrap up this uh, beautiful conversation. Where can people reach you? I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by you, and I feel like I my my capabilities would not be able to reach the level of um, creative and technology driven stuff you do. So I, I need to step back here a little bit. But anyone who's listening, potentially thinking outside the box and doing truly innovative, remarkable stuff, who can people reach you or see you? Sure. Um, well, there's our website, which, as with every design firm, needs updating because we, you know, did a load of work a year ago and it was pretty, and then we've done stuff since. So that's Park Office. It's Park with a C. Uh, parkoffice.com. Uh, We've got the Insta and the Twitter of both of those. Um, My business partner, Will's Instagram is much more design considered. Uh, He's Will Prince. Um, 
Charles W. D. Marshall. Am- amazing name, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, my it was uh, our, it's funny. Our, our, a friend of ours, when we were looking at whether or not we shifted, uh, we made a new Park Office Instagram, or whether we used Will's as the business one or my one. Um, our friend described Will's as really considered a lot about design, and then and then looked at me and said, yours is just blue drinks and airports, um, which I still adore because there is a certain amount of blue drinks and airports in my uh, Instagram feed, but it's there. Um, but yeah, um, hit up the website. We have our contact details on there if people want to get in touch. Um, yeah, more than anything, I'm always happy to, <laughs> I'm always happy to come and talk to people. Um, so I've, one of the things I've been meaning to do I haven't been teaching in a while. Part of that is green card stuff. So is to get back into teaching. And the other part of it is to go and do more talks about the business of design and the business of creativity. Because I think it's something that we don't get taught in school, be it high school, about how to deal with money and the concept of it and how to get some of it and not blow it all. Um, But also in art school, design school, there's almost no education around like how do you actually get a job how do you run a freelance gig without going bankrupt how do you not sign away your soul how do you not do it like all of that bit i think is a big is, portion is at like why do you get taught 3d studio max but not get taught how to write a contract right blows my mind so many questions <laughs> to potentially follow up. Um, maybe we have a conversation sometime in the future. Yeah, I um, could actually talk about design. <laughs> we can actually talk about design and the value of design and yeah. how to set everything up. Um, Charles Marshall and William Prince from Park Office. Uh, we didn't speak to William, but... We could talk uh, to Will next time. Charles, that was absolutely wonderful. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate it and thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. This week's episode with Charles Marshall, I'm still touched by the conversation and I could not be more excited and a fanboy of Park Office, parkoffice.com, park with a C, go and check out his and their work. It's absolutely enlightening and amazing. I'm a big fan of Charles and well, what can I say? Please check in for next week's episode of The Light Lounge and so long, stay lit. <laughs>